Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. Okay, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. That's our mission statement. And those are the words that we use to try to describe and inspire us to be a particular kind of people, and not just as individuals, but as a community, as a family, as a body. We see how important it is that we don't see ourselves as people who come into a room and have spiritual thoughts for a few minutes because we've been saved. But we together as a body that we would participate in, that we would embrace and embody the missional way of life that Jesus demonstrated and that He set us on even with His words because we're people who embrace Jesus with everything. We seek to build our entire life on Jesus, that He would be the center of our lives, seeing Him and knowing Him and loving Him, learning to trust Him more and more day by day, finding our truest sense of self, our identity in Him, and becoming more and more like Him as we behold Him. And there's nothing new, there's nothing novel about that. We made none of this up. That is simply Christianity. That's what biblical Christianity is. Our mission statement, all this is, what this means is this is what a Christian is and this is the Christian life. It's this right here. But there's a lot of confusion about that in our world, what Christianity and what the Christian church is and isn't. And it's not, it's not new confusion, it's very old confusion. In fact, when the Emperor Constantine in Rome sought to institutionalize Christianity for the whole Roman Empire, Christianity began to mean something new. It began to mean power and politics and attempts at national conversion, which fourth century was a long time ago, but doesn't that sound a lot like how the world views the Christian church, even today, right? That's a scary thing because we believe, while the world thinks that Christianity is just another world religion, we believe that Christianity is very different than religion. Religion is some ideas or some advice that some human came up with that gives you the opportunity to try to appease God or get close to God, and so they gain followers, they coerce or force people to follow their advice if they want to have any chance of being good enough to get close to God. But we believe Christianity is different than religion. Christianity is simply people finding their identity in Jesus, and we do so because Jesus left heaven and He came to earth, and He lived a life that we never could, and He died a death in our place, taking on the penalty of our sins. He was put in a grave. He rose from the grave, proving that He defeats death and gives life to all who would receive it from Him. Christianity is people who receive it from Him, and because they've received life from Him, they find that they have a place in His family. And they have a place in his, his mission. Religion is advice for how you can be good enough to get close to God. Christianity is knowing that you can't do anything on your own ever to be strong enough or smart enough. You can't do anything to earn a place with God. So Jesus came in our place and did it for us. So I'm, I'm hitching my wagon to Him. Like, like I am not my own. I was bought at a price. My identity is tied up in who He is And what He's doing in my interior life and what He's seeking to do through my life is to make me more and more into the kind of abundant life I was created for in the first place and to reach more and more people as I live on mission for Him and with Him. So tell your friends that, tell your neighbors, tell the news, and tell some churches that have forgotten Christianity 
is people who find their identity in Jesus and live with Him on His mission. That's, that's what it's all about. And today what I want to talk to you about is the incredible impact that it makes on the world when people understand that. The absolute game changer it is when people understand Christianity is simply people whose lives are wrapped up with Jesus and they're living on His mission. Grab your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 11. Well, actually, we'll just start at Acts chapter 1. I think it's important for us to kind of follow the flow of how things tie together throughout the book of Acts. And we're going to see some people in a place called Antioch and what a game changer it is in their time, but also for all time that they understood what it means to have your identity in Jesus and to live on mission with Him. Acts chapter 1, after Jesus rose from the dead, He spent time with His disciples. In Acts chapter 1, they're in Jerusalem, and Jesus is speaking with them. And Jesus says, listen, what's coming next, I'm going to ascend to prepare a place for you, that where I am you may be also, but what's happening next for you is the Holy Spirit's coming. He's the helper. He's coming, and He's going to empower you. He's going to dwell with you, be with you, and help you to carry out the mission that I've left for you. Acts 1.8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in all Jerusalem and through all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. You get to Acts chapter 2, that very thing happens. Those who have placed their, their faith in Jesus Christ receive the Holy Spirit, and they begin uttering in, in a tongue. They begin speaking in a spiritual tongue, and what they're doing is making noises, and everyone is hearing and understanding what they're saying, and they're declaring the gospel, but it's confusing because the crowd around them are going, there's something really freaky happening on here, happening right here. And so Peter stands up and he says, I'm going to tell you exactly what is happening. Today is proof that everything Jesus said that He was and that He would do is true. The Holy Spirit has come, and all of you listen now, and He preaches the gospel over the crowds, and we're told in Acts 2 that when they heard the gospel, they were pierced to the heart, and on that day, 3,000 people believed. End of Acts 2 ends with the detail as the church is gathering and they're devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread and prayer, the way that they're living, the way that they're devoted to the teachings of, of Jesus. It says the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Turn to Acts chapter 4. We see the church in Jerusalem in a very short period of time is growing. It's, it's growing quick, Acts 4.4. 4. But many of those who heard the message believed and the number of men came to be about 5,000. So add to that women and children, and I don't know, I mean, maybe it's 10,000, 15,000 or more people who have surrendered their life to Jesus. They're not trying to earn their place with God any longer. They're trusting Jesus to bring them into fellowship with God, and they love Jesus, and they're learning to trust Him day by day. They're growing in their faith, and they're talking about Jesus, and it's a huge movement all happening in Jerusalem. And so government leaders in Jerusalem are seeing a mass crowd of people who are all speaking differently, talking differently. They're all excited about something. And so they begin to put the clamp on the, on the church. And we find that they begin putting people in prison. They even at the end of Acts chapter 7 take one of the key leaders in the early days of the church in Jerusalem, a man named Stephen, and they murder him. 
And that's what you find at the end of of chapter 7 of Acts. Stephen is murdered. At the beginning of chapter 8, now we find great persecution happening for the Christians in the church at Jerusalem. And it says that they begin to scatter throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria and all throughout the ends of the earth. And it's fascinating here because when we looked at Acts 1-8, Jesus told them that the gospel was going to hit first in Jerusalem, but ripples would spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to even the remotest part of the earth. But Jesus didn't tell them how the gospel was going to travel from Jerusalem. And what we begin to see here and learn is that it's not a program and it's not a mission trip or a famous preacher that's going to move the gospel from Jerusalem out to the remotest parts of the earth, but it's persecution. It's tough days. It's even pain and and suffering that's going to move the gospel from the gathering out into the scattering. And and what I want to focus on this morning is how that message scattered to a place called Antioch. So turn to Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 26, Acts 11, 19 through 26, in a place called Antioch, which was 300 miles north of Jerusalem, about 20 miles east of the Mediterranean. In the first century, uh, Antioch was one of the, the three largest cities in the world, Rome, Alexandria, and then Antioch. There were half a million people living in Antioch. This isn't some podunk country town. This is a metropolitan area. Uh, out of the 500,000 or so people living there, about a seventh of the population were Jewish, but it was an absolute cultural melting pot of, of ethnicities and cultures and religions and ideologies and, and takes on ethics and how the family is to be and how you handle uh, education and how you handle crime and how you handle sexuality and how you handle everything in, in, that you might handle in, in this life. It was all there running against each other in Antioch. And so for the sake of keeping peace in a city with such diversity ethnically, religiously, with with such different worldviews, somewhere in Antioch's history, they built walls throughout the city. And and you can imagine, like from TV and movies, how ancient cities had walls around their cities to protect them from outside influence. And and picture in Antioch, not only would they have had something like that, but they had walls running kind of like, actually kind of like these walls, running through the cities sectioning off the areas for different peoples with different ideologies. This is a way for us to try to keep peace in a place of diversity. Let's just not interact with one another. Stay in your quarter. Stay in your section. And and so these walls were built, and they were both literal walls separating people, but they were also symbolic of the great divides of worldviews that are experienced in a metropolitan place where the people of the nations of the earth all come together. And here's what we find in Acts 11, verse 19. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, they made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Here's the good news hidden within the heartbreak of Stephen being murdered and the government coming against the church and people running for their freedom and running for their lives as the masses are turning against the Christians. They're going, but they're still sharing the gospel as they go. And persecution was causing them to run from their homes, to run from even their cities, to leave their jobs and and maybe extended family behind, but it's not shutting them up. 
And it reminds me uh, of a story in Acts 4 about Peter and John, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Peter and John, they heal a man. He's asking them for money. They say, we don't have money, but what we have is, and they heal him in the name of Jesus. And they're, they're performing these signs and wonders as they go, and they're declaring Jesus as king everywhere they go, and it gets them in trouble. And the Sanhedrin arrests them and brings them forward and says, look, you've got to stop talking about Jesus. And if you don't, well, then we're going to, and then you finish the sentence. They're, they're going to do something to them. And Peter and John respond, the first part of the response is something I feel every day. They say something kind of like, you know, in life, sometimes it's really hard to know what to do and what to say when you're a Christian. And then they finish the statement by saying, but all I know is I can't help talking about what I've seen and heard with Jesus. I can't stop talking about it. It's too good. And this is what's happening with these Christians as they move into Antioch. And if we look back at Acts 8.1, it says this persecution came against the church. And I love this detail. They were scattered through the regions of, of Judea and Samaria. Listen to this. Except the apostles. And I think that's important because it's not Peter and John who went to Antioch declaring the gospel there. It's not Philip and, and James being sent on a short-term mission trip. This is just ordinary people. It's just some people. It's just unnamed men and women who love Jesus. They're unofficial. They have no seminary training. They have no church planting experience. They have no strategy before them and no leadership behind them. It's just some people. And they moved into Antioch, and they were talking about Jesus. And I don't want you to miss that because this is how, this is how the gospel moves all throughout the book of, of Acts, all through the New Testament. It's about people going where they're going, talking about Jesus. And I think about today, how easy we might miss this, because if today we were to sit down and have a power meeting about starting a church or how to make our church reach more people or how to make a bigger impact in this community, what we would do first is we'd say, well, we need to get a really talented speaker and a killer band and a great sound system and a place together, and we need to write programs for every age and every stage, and then we're set. We'll win them all to the Lord. And those are not bad things. They're very useful tools when they're left in God's hands but none of those things are mentioned in the book of Acts. And you take away the platform and you take away the professionals and the programs and all you have is just some people talking about Jesus with the people that they're around on a daily basis. Now, we see in verse 19 that most of them, though, they were speaking the word to no one except the Jews alone. That means they were only seeking to share the gospel with Jewish people living in Antioch. They only were seeking to find people kind of like them who had grown up, they were, were cultural Jews, and wanted to bring them into life in Christ. And I'm not going to throw shade at them too quickly because I don't know what their motive was. I, I don't know if, if they just were choosing to be narrow-minded and only share with one fraction of the people living in Antioch or if they were just so devoted to the thing that they were doing and the thing that they had seen done that it never occurred to them that they ought to share the gospel with more than just Jews but anyone and everyone living in Antioch. Maybe it was they just were looking for low-hanging fruit. They just were sharing the gospel with people who they had a lot in common with 
already, like people who were living behind the same walled-off area in Antioch, people who had the same culture, same traditions, ate the same food, spoke, spoke the same mother tongue, and it's just, this is the people I would share with anyways, so, so why not? We do know that the Apostle Peter really struggled coming to a place where he believed and embraced the idea that the gospel was for Gentiles also, and not just for Jews. In fact, in Acts 10, the Lord told uh, Peter to go to Cornelius' house, a, a Gentile soldier, to go and share the gospel there. And Peter went as reluctantly as he could. He, he reminds me of Jonah going to Nineveh, kicking and the whole way, just kicking his feet. Fine, God, I'll go if I have to go. And even when he gets to Cornelius' house, it's like, you know I shouldn't be here, right? You know that I shouldn't be hanging out with you people. And then he begins to declare the gospel, and we're told that even before he finished speaking, the Holy Spirit rained down. I, I think it was to teach Peter simply that all you're supposed to do is go and talk to anyone and everyone about Jesus and let God handle the rest. So Peter struggled with this. So I'm not kicking these, these folks around. I'm not struggling with them too much because they are sharing the gospel. They're doing the good thing, the right thing. That's great. But the even greater thing is verse 20. But there were also some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began, they, they were also Jews who were living in Cyprus, who at some point came to saving faith in Jesus, and they've moved to Antioch, and they began speaking to the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. See, what they're doing is something that's never been seen or heard of or done here in this way. They refuse to remain in the walled-off sections of Antioch. They break every cultural barrier. And these are just some people who love Jesus and won't be kept behind walls. They're people who won't stop talking about Jesus wherever they go. And again, the strange thing about this is like who gave them their, their charge? I mean, we, we think, yeah, you should break down cultural barriers. Of course you should because we've read what? Read the whole New Testament. And we know that we're supposed to take the gospel everywhere, but they didn't have that. So who told them to do this? Where did they get their evangelism training? What was their plan? Yeah, how did they organize? Who was their ringleader? Well, we're told the hand of the Lord was with them, right? The hand of the Lord was with them. That's all they needed. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. They had no plan, no program that we know of. They had no script, no, no tricks in their bag for how to share the gospel. They just had an overwhelming zeal for the Lord. It's just the people of God with the Word of God speaking about Jesus. The hand of God is with them, and an overwhelming number, a considerable number of people are coming to believe in Jesus just because these ordinary men and women are talking about Jesus where they live. To quote the Mandalorian, this is the way. Can you say it with me? There's no better application because, friends, this is the way of Christianity. This is the way of Christianity, that you and I would go and talk about Jesus everywhere we go. We'd have such zeal for Him. It would just be the people of God and the Word of God and the Spirit of God just moving into life, talking about Jesus in considerable numbers, God turning considerable numbers into His family. These are people who just were not ashamed of the gospel. They truly believed it was the power of salvation for all who would believe. They, they believe this with their whole heart. Just ordinary people like us that God is unleashing to bless this 
community. And before long, as this is happening, word starts spreading. And the church at Jerusalem hears, like, there's something crazy and chaotic happening in Antioch. Verse 22, the news about them reached the ears of the church uh, at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. It's like, we're hearing some crazy stuff out of Antioch. And number one, we got to figure out what's going on there. Number two, we got to get a handle on this situation because we don't want anybody messing this stuff up. I don't know if that's totally their motive, but you can imagine. And so they send Barnabas, who I think is a brilliant person to send. Acts 4.36 gives us this detail. I want you to see this. Acts 4.36 says, Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, and he owned a tract of land, he sold it, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. I want you to see this because we go, look, he's of Jewish heritage, he's even a Levite, one who's set apart for service to the Lord, but at some point comes to saving faith in Jesus, so much so that the apostles go, this guy's life in Christ is a complete encouragement to everyone he encounters. We're giving him a new name. We'll call him Barnabas now. Not only is he faithful and encouraging, but look, he has all of this personal property that he sells and he lays the money at the apostles' feet because he says, this stuff, it's not about me and what I accumulate in this life. Let's further the kingdom of God. And also the detail here that he's of Cyprian birth. So he's from Cyprus. He's one of these Jews who lived in Cyprus and then came to saving faith in Jesus and at some point moved into Jerusalem. So maybe he even has some friends among those from Cyprus who've moved into Antioch and are sharing the gospel. He's the perfect person for them to send to check things out. Verse 23 says, when he arrived and he witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and he began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. Now, I could have seen this going very differently when he arrived. I could have seen Barnabas walking in and, and seeing everything that was taking place in a very different light because make no mistake, these new Christians in Antioch from diverse backgrounds and ideologies were baby Christians who had not learned much or matured much at this, at this point in time. Like, I assume many, if not most of them, had miles and years to go to understanding how their new relationship with Jesus should curb their language and curb their attitude and curb the way they treat their spouse and their kids and their neighbors and curb their ethics like, they probably didn't have a great order of worship, and they probably didn't have a very good band. And so, I could have imagined when Barnabas came in town, he might respond like me. I might walk in there and go, who is going on? What is going on here, and who's in charge? Like, who do I have to talk to to get all this stuff fixed? Show me your doctrinal statement. Show me your church constitution. Show me your mission statement and your vision statement, because things here don't look right, because it doesn't look like how I do things. Right? It's easy for us to do that. But Barnabas, says he walked in and he witnessed the grace of God. When he looked at them, he wasn't criticizing, he wasn't nitpicking. He could see Christ-like grace. Maybe he saw the fruit of the Spirit. Maybe love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Maybe these things were on display even in like the smallest ways, but he saw it for what it was. He said, something here smells like Jesus. The grace of God is here. And he rejoiced. And, and understand, this is a, a holy new kind of experience 
that's happening in Antioch, it's hard not to underestimate how strange of a situation this would be. So, go with me on this. Imagine, and this could go really wrong if I'm not careful or if we're mean people, but I don't think we're mean people. So, just imagine for a second the, uh, the least likely people that you could imagine who would be sold out for Jesus. Hopefully, they're not in this room already, or maybe they are, I don't know. Um, but think about some of the most immoral, most confused, most gospel-resistant people that you can imagine. Now, imagine that group of people in a room, and you walk in, and they are singing and praising Jesus and talking about how excited they are that I've found Jesus. That's what this is like. We can't underestimate how radical it is that Gentiles are gathered with former Jews, and they're singing praises to the Lord and talking about how their life has been changed by Jesus. And when Barnabas saw it, it made his heart leap. He didn't grow suspicious, which is something we do. He didn't grow suspicious. He didn't come in and try to take over and and take control. He didn't come in and say, look, you all need to start falling in line and looking like the church at Jerusalem, and I'm going to make it happen here. It says he rejoiced, verse 23, and he began to encourage them all with resolute heart simply to remain true to the Lord. Just keep doing it. Just keep doing the thing you're doing. Don't worry about the order of worship. Don't worry about all the programs and the ages and stages. Just keep talking about Jesus everywhere you go. Keep at it. Keep Him at the center of everything you do in this life. And what's Barnabas' secret to responding this way? Because it's way too easy for me, and I'm not assuming too much. I don't think it's too easy for us to see someone who's new to faith or someone who expresses their faith in a different way or to see someone who doesn't have all of it together in their life and to look at them and to criticize them and to point out everything that's going on that they believe is wrong, that I believe is wrong in their life. It's too easy for us to go there. So what is Barnabas' secret? How does he experience a rejoicing and an encouraging response to seeing their faith? It tells us simply, verse 24, for he was a good man and he was full of the Holy Spirit he was full of faith. He was a good man, and he was full of the Holy Spirit, and he was full of faith. And I think this is evidence that Barnabas was living out what Jesus said in John 15 about abiding the fruit in the vine passage, where Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing, but you abide in me and I abide in you, will bear much fruit that glorifies God. And that's what's happening here. The end of verse 24, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. Is that cool? Somebody say, that's cool, Kevin. I think so. Okay, verse 25, and he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and they taught, again, considerable numbers. By the way, notice Barnabas didn't go back to Jerusalem, the people who sent him to check things out and say, okay, guys, here's my report. And now I need you all to come with me into Antioch. No, he went and looked for Saul and he found Saul. One reason probably is because he'd met him before. And he knew that Saul, who we also know as Paul, was set apart to be an apostle to Gentiles. And he knew Paul's backstory. He knew that he lived in multiple worlds throughout his entire life. And so he knew Paul would thrive in an environment like Antioch. 
But I want you to consider this. Back in Acts 8, the persecution that came against the church that drove many of these people away from their homes, away from their jobs, away from their families, and drove them into Antioch. Well, it happened, and Saul was hearty, in hearty agreement with the stoning of Stephen, and it was Saul, we find out, that was the one who was ravaging the church. It was this same Saul who was going to their homes and dragging them out and throwing them in prison and having them beaten. And so you can imagine what a strange and scary, spooky moment this had to have been when they, having fled from their homes to this place and talked about Jesus and good things are happening, and suddenly Saul, dun, 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 walks into the room, and it's like, whoa. And, and some of them probably had family members who had been beaten at, under Saul's order. Some of them fled their homes because they knew that Saul would knock down their door next. And yet, it's this guy that God chooses after calling to himself to send back to these people, to pour into them spiritually, people he'd persecuted. He'd chased them away, and now he's to pour life into them. And eventually, here's the crazy, strange thing. This church becomes the home base for Paul. They become his home church, his sending church for all his missionary journeys. They become the safe space that he can always return to because they're family. And this reminds me of something, that God's will always wins. It is God's will that every person who finds their identity in Jesus would be his witnesses everywhere we go. That's God's will. And verse 26 ends with a beautiful, it's not little, a massive detail. It says, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. You want to talk about impacting the world through the gospel? This is a turning point. This is a defining moment for Christianity, for the church. There are mass amounts of people here who are placing their saving faith in Jesus. There's a lot of them, and it began to change them, and they rejected all of the things that formerly would have divided them. They crossed cultural barriers. They crossed uh, relational barriers. They started calling everybody friend, brother, and sister. Citizens from Ant in Antioch from every race and every creed began putting their faith in Jesus, and then they were literally climbing the walls and crossing lines together together to pray for people, to celebrate Jesus together, to meet needs of people together. They were crossing every societal norm in the name of Jesus, and it astounded the city leaders. They had never seen anything like this. Why won't these people conform to the societal norms? They won't go to the right or to the left. They say, we don't care about walls. And they're going and they're meeting people's needs at personal cost. They're loving one another. They're forgiving one another. They're bearing with one another. They're together. The peace that is about them is so strange. And all they do is talk about Jesus all the time. And so the leaders in Antioch, and I don't think this was a compliment I don't th think they were saying, oh, this is fantastic. Let's call them Christians. I think that in this moment they're going, these people are weirdos. They're nuts. Like, why won't they just fit in? We built walls so they would know where they ought to be. Keep talking about this stinking Jesus and keep doing the things that they said he did. Let's we'll call them nasty Christians, weirdos. And it's a defining moment for the church. A group of people fit nowhere else other than in the model and the mold of Jesus Christ. This is Christianity. 
They're breaking all of the conventional rules, defying all of the boxes people put them in, and it's growing. It needs a new definable name, one that won't be bound by walls or societal norms. And guess what? It's Jesus Christ that was defining what was happening in Antioch. It was all what He was doing in Antioch. All these people shared was a dependence on Jesus and an experience of Him transforming their lives in magnificent ways. This is what it requires for us to see the gospel move, and this is what it takes for the gospel to reach a city. It's people, just some people committing to talk about Jesus, committing to do so, not as individuals, but as a, as a community, overcoming barriers, rejecting societal norms, being fixed on the gospel and engaging. It, it requires engagement. It's not something that you can avoid it's not something that you can just have spiritual thoughts sometimes because, well, I'm a Christian, so sometimes I'm kind of nice. You have to be engaged with people around you who are far from God. And these people in Antioch, they were absolutely changing the game for evangelism. They were changing the game completely for ministry, and they were giving us a prototype of what Jesus' kingdom looks like. Romans 7 says, People from every tribe, every tongue, every nation were gathered at the throne of Jesus, worshiping Him as King. They're doing it in Antioch. <laughs> and so should we. I want to make three quick points to end my time with you. Acts 11, by the way, it's not prescriptive, right? It wasn't written by Luke to say, hey, everybody do the things that I'm writing. It's descriptive. But we can learn a lot from our brothers and sisters in Antioch. There's a lot we can learn about their attitudes, about really about the people of God, the hand of God, talking about Jesus. Number one, it's with our lips and with our lives that God moves the gospel forward. Let's say it again. It's with our lips and with our lives that God moves the gospel forward. Our mission strategy must be Lots of us, all of us, going out and talking about Jesus. That's the strategy. I can come up with something that has 10 points to it, but it wouldn't be worth our time. Our mission strategy is all of us leaving this place and talking about Jesus all week. That's it. And, and we've got to go talk about Him and make disciples and do so in the Spirit of God for the glory of God that He may bring more and more people into His family, into His kingdom. I think one of the problems that we face and that we fall into a lot is that we, we don't think that it's with our lips and our lives. We think that we can just go out and be nice people, and people will start to figure it out, right? You know, I, I'll be extra nice, I'll be graceful, and people who are far from God will go, oh, you must be one of those Christians, <laughs> and they'll figure it all out on, on their own. No, we have to open our, our mouths. We have to open our mouths. The whole New Testament is people proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ. Another problem is when we proclaim the message of Jesus Christ, but we don't live it or back it up with our character. That's a big problem too. It's with our lips and with our lives that God moves the gospel forward. Number two, let's embrace suffering as a God-ordained means for the accomplishment of the Great Commission. Again, Let's embrace suffering as a God-ordained means for the accomplishment of the Great Commission. Let me tell you what I mean here. David Platt made the comment that uh, the church at Antioch started because of persecution. It's 
just making an observation that maybe if Stephen hadn't been killed and Paul hadn't come against the church in the way he did, the people might not have fled and maybe the gospel would not yet have left Jerusalem at this point in time. But it was martyrdom in the church that led to the multiplication of the church is what he said. And you look at the New Testament, the whole New Testament is that the gospel spread not in spite of Christian suffering. No, the gospel spread because Christians willingly endured suffering and they stayed faithful to Jesus in spite of it. That's how the gospel spread. And that makes total sense when you realize that we're following a suffering Savior who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame And now he's set uh, at the right hand of the throne of God. Why? Did Jesus love suffering and shame? No, Jesus endured it willingly and joyfully because he knew his suffering and his shame would bring about our salvation. And he sits down at the right hand of the throne of God because he knows it worked. It's complete. It's finished. And so listen to this. While Jesus willingly and, and joyfully endured to accomplish salvation, we may have to suffer to spread salvation. You read Romans, you read 2 Timothy, you read 2 Corinthians, you read Philippians, you read James, you read it over and over and over again that we should expect to share in the glory of Jesus Christ. We're co-heirs with Christ, but we should also expect to share in His suffering in our days on earth. And it's not getting easier to to, to be Jesus freaks in in the place that we live. And there are, are places around the world where it's never been easy on, on Friday night, David Platt's ministry did what they do every year called Secret Church. And I, I think that they were doing Syria or China focused this year. But it's about people throughout the world who bleed for Jesus, and they have to meet in secret. They, they have to wear hoods in, into the places they go. They can't allow people to notice large groups gathering. We met, remember this a few years ago, Justin? We met missionaries from China, Christians in China, a result of Ann Newman's sister being a missionary there, led them to Christ. This young couple has a church meeting in their apartment complex, but no one can know they're a church that's meeting there. They can't sing out loud. Sometimes they have to meet at this place or that place so people don't see, oh, every Tuesday night a group of 10 people gather here because they would be arrested. They would be drug out of their homes. They would be beaten. They're afraid for their lives. It's hard. It's costly in some places. Not so much here. Maybe popularity, maybe wealth, but it's not getting easier. It's getting costlier even in North America to to declare Jesus. So let's embrace, let's be willing to embrace suffering as a God-ordained means for the accomplishment of the Great Commission. Don't forget this is God's design. This is what Jesus did. And when we willingly endure and remain faithful, it says something. It says that Jesus is worth it, that He's better than my wealth, He's better than my popularity, He's better than my comfort, He's better than my safety. And that message may fall on ears, and some may say, maybe Jesus is worth it. That's how the gospel spread all throughout the Bible. It's a powerful message to all who hear it. Point three, be like Barnabas, looking for any sign of the grace of God, and when you see it, immediately begin rejoicing, encouraging, and making disciples where you are. Look, when, when we sat down to write this mission statement a few years ago, um, I wanted to include the word impact because I realized how easy it is in my life and it is in, in church life for us to, to assume the first two are going well, that I'm a Christian and I'm on mission I have a place in His mission, 
and to go down the road living my life and not ever see fruit. Now, we know the Bible says that God's the one who produces the fruit. But Jesus does say, if you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. And I've seen too many seasons in my life where I go, well, I'm a Christian and I'm on mission, but I'm not expecting, I'm not desiring to see changed lives around me. I'm not hungering and thirsting for people who are far from God to come close to God through saving faith in Jesus Christ. And I want in my own life, in my family, and in our church for us to expect and to yearn to see new people folded in to the family of God so we get to land the plane. We can't just say, well, I'm a Christian. Yeah, we're on mission. We've got to seek and desire and pray for and fight for impact in the world around us, gospel impact. And so may you, filled with the Holy Spirit, by His help, grow to learn and appreciate and mature in what it means to find your truest sense of self in Jesus Christ. Not in what you possess, not what in you produce, but in who He is. And may He help you to use all of the gifting that He's given you, your story, your experiences, your passions for His glory, that His kingdom will reign, not only one day, but even today in all of the places that you go throughout this week, in your schools, in your jobs, in your gym, that the gospel would make an impact in the lives of the people around you. Can I pray? Hey, Jesus, in the middle of a season where our nation and our city, and at moments, even maybe it creeps in the doors of our church We're tempted to be divided by all of the things that society says we should be divided about. We reject it. And Holy Spirit, we need your help to follow that up with our actions. Would you help our minds and our hearts to be so resolutely centered on Jesus Christ as King, the one who endured all for me to give me life and life abundant Would you help me to be so resolutely fixed on that? That Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith, that I would reject being put behind walls and behind boxes and living in fear. But instead, I would be wholeheartedly committed to the gospel that saved me, being shared through me. And I, Lord, I ask that we have pure hearts about this because we really don't care about numbers and attendance in a room on a Sunday. But Lord, we desperately want to see people come to saving faith. And we don't know the day or the hour that you return, Jesus, but we know it's coming. And I, and who knows, but it feels like it's coming soon. At least it's sooner than it was yesterday. So Lord, make us passionate simply to talk about Jesus. And maybe in such ways that we'd be surprised like Peter in Acts 10, who even reluctantly just said, well, fine, I'll just talk about Jesus. And would you surprise us with moments of transformation that would open our minds and our hearts and make our hearts beat for the thing that you desire most, for people who would come to life in the name of Jesus and worship Him forever. 
set us afire for that. In Jesus' name. Amen.